Hello and welcome to Plus Plus, the podcast from Palantir.net, where we discuss what's new and interesting in the world of open source technologies and agile methodologies. I'm your host, George Demet. On today's episode of Plus Plus, we're going to talk about what's popularly become known as generative AI. These are software tools like ChatGPT, Bing, MidJourney, and others that utilize neural networks and massive amounts of data, much of which is scraped off the web, to generate text, images, audio, and video. This technology has actually been around for a long time, but what's notable about the latest generation of AI tools is their uncanny ability to mimic human language and create sophisticated works that, at least at the first glance, can be easily mistaken for something created by a human. So I'm here today with a few Palantir team members to help us sort through the fast-changing and often bewildering world of AI, some of the ways people are using these tools at home and at work, a few tips on how to use them in a safe and responsible way, and we'll also explore their potential impact on culture and society. So let's go ahead and get started with introductions. So I just kind of want to go around and ask, tell us your name and the AI tools that you've worked with so far. Yeah, I'm Patrick Weston. I am a developer at Palantir, so my focus is a little geared towards that experience. I've mainly used ChatGPT and GitHub's Copilot tooling um, when it comes to AI work. I also have used ChatGPT some in my personal life as well for various tasks, uh, kind of small and, and large, so I'm sure we'll dive into it, but those are the two that I've used. Hi, I'm Jack Graham. I am a user experience architect and designer here at Palantir, and I have used ChatGPT and MidJourney. Hi, everyone. My name is Saksana. I'm an engineer here in Palantir, and I mainly work with the ChatGPT. Um, the other tool is Grammarly, and for personal uh, experience, I use uh, Remodel AI. Hi, I'm Rob DeVita. I'm a senior project manager at Palantir, and I've worked with ChatGPT, Bard, uh, dabbled in MidJourney a little bit, and lately I've been using Miro AI. And my name is George Demet. I have worked with ChatGPT, Bard, Claude, uh, Stable Diffusion, and Adobe's generative filters that are in the soon-to-be-released Photoshop beta. I thought we might get started by seeing how folks are using these kinds of tools in your day-to-day -day life outside of work. Patrick, you had mentioned that you were using them in a few different ways. You wanna elaborate? I can think of two primary ways. The first is to get some sort of first draft for written communication. So I'm planning a wedding in December and I was using it to help me with uh, like invitation wording. I've also, been doing some other like speech writing sort of things and it's been helpful with that and then i'm also doing a good chunk of trip planning so uh my parents have never been to europe and we're wanting to go as a family in the spring i have another trip coming up so i've been asking it prompts and trying to get information out of it as far as traveling goes so it's been helpful i think as a, a first start for a lot of things I have used it in a little bit more of a, I don't know, a tactical way to do some uh, repetitive tasks, but 
that's not quite as exciting. So that's kind of been my focus. Writing is not my strongest suit, and I feel like I react better to having a draft of content. And so it's been really, really helpful to get something started that I can then tweak and edit to make it kind of sound like my own. Speaking of event planning, Patrick, uh, my wife is celebrating a birthday soon. So we recently asked ChatGPT to help us select some baked goods from Costco for her Sunday brunch and did a pretty good job. I like to use the AI for food-related things, so ChatGPT has kind of been my sous chef lately. I love cooking, especially the improvisational parts, but on the other hand, eggs are about $75 a dozen right now, so if I want to make a perfect soft-boiled egg, I tend to ask the robot how to do that, and it gives me the answer. Jack? Well, outside of work, I'm a writer, and so obviously I have a lot of questions in my head about the fate of creative people in this new world. As far as generative image AIs, I've been working a lot with Midjourney, and I've dabbled with some of the other ones like Dali, primarily uh, to visualize and sort of collab a little bit. I've had it uh, draw pictures of characters for me, or I'll give it a prompt describing something. Like there was a weird chest at the bottom of a harbor in one story I was working on, and I had it draw the weird chest with the divers finding it. And I find that that, for me, um, makes things more interesting, uh, easier to visualize. And sometimes the AI comes up with stuff that you didn't expect. I haven't used ChatGBT for personal use really very much at all because I am a writer. And I've got a little bit of a John Henry complex about that, you might say. <laughs> I've dabbled with the search AIs a little bit. And so far, I'm finding them terrible. <laughs> The Google one is uh, especially inaccurate right now, although GTP itself also just lies about stuff. I don't trust it at all as a searcher, a knowledge tool in many respects. Well, everything that it puts out, you, you sort of have to fact check still. And I've had conversations with it where it said something that I knew was wrong, and I, I then said, no, that's, that's wrong. And it will finally admit it to you that it's wrong. <laughs> and say, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer to that. And then the final way that I've been using it is as a uh, a language tutor. That's the one outside of work use that I've found it's really neat for is it supports some pretty obscure languages that I happen to be studying, like Icelandic and Haitian Creole. And you can have a dialogue with it in those languages. It will detect what language you're using. And then it does a pretty decent job of keeping up with the conversation. So that part's been interesting and seems to be a lot more accurate than some of the search information that it brings back. One of the challenges I've observed is that even when it is completely wrong, it will sound so authoritative. In our little uh, Slack channel that we have, Jack, actually, that was you shared the uh, post that someone made describing ChatGPT as mansplaining as a service. And uh, <laughs> it felt so real. <laughs> It does feel really real, doesn't it? Because yeah. it doesn't hedge when it comes back with answers a lot of time. And I, I think we're talking particularly about ChatGPT here. ChatGPT does not hedge. It it goes in, it goes all in on whatever disinformation it's about to give you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. How'd that egg come out, Rob? Yeah. Oh, that came out okay. Uh, but I have had it lie to me as well. It's following the fake it till you make it protocol. I asked it the other day to list some interesting articles that I had written. I've been on the internet long enough that, you know, my name is out there, but it generated a list of 
10 completely fictitious articles about digital marketing. And then I proceeded to ask it some more about my professional background and history. And it just made up a complete backstory for me that was just completely false. <laughs> but people are using it to find information. And again, as we were saying, it's I think that's one of the challenges, right? It's It does sound so authoritative. It'll tell you all about the time President Kennedy landed on the moon in great detail. Is that one you've tested, Jack? No, but yeah, go do it now. I bet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Exana, I'm curious how you've been using AIs outside of work. So the chat GPT, I use like uh, other folks to help me plan some events like uh, my daughter's birthday party or some activities outside or on the water or like some fun facts for her. And um, the other tool I use, it's I mentioned it's a remodel AI and I use that for remodel my house. And it's actually give me some really good advice and really good uh, ideas and some absolutely not really <laughs> relevant or impossible to creative life. <laughs> so it goes kind of like both ways. And the other thing is a Grammarly I use pretty often when I'm writing some work email or some documents since English my second language. This is my jam. I use it to like make the sentences correct and I want to make sure it's all right and written and people can read it correctly. So that that's pretty good. And if I think what else like that's the main thing I use. Like, I feel we're using so many AI without even think how many there. It's like a, I don't know, Face ID or Alexa or Siri or something else, like every day. It's absolutely true, right? I think Chat GPT and the other newer programs get a lot of attention, but I think that's a really valid point that a lot of the underlying technology is built into the things we use for quite some time. The photos tool on my iPhone that will pull together a a special moment or something like that, I think is a great example, or tell me what photos are of which people in my family. Outside of work, I tend to just play around with the different chat engines. And so Claude is uh, one that uh, is a little bit newer. It uh, is from a company that was formed by some of the former developers of ChatGPT, and it's a little bit more focused on sort of creative writing. And so one thing I was doing last weekend was coming up with various historical figures and creating a little mini bot that role plays essentially as that person. And so, uh, and then you can ask, you know, the historical figure about things that have happened since they've passed away. So that was that was fun. We did use it for helping to plan one of our children's birthday parties. But otherwise, I I don't think I've been doing anything really useful with it. Just kind of playing with it as a as kind of a toy. I've mentioned uh, Stable Diffusion before, which is another image generation app similar to Midjourney. Just trying to see what kind of crazy mythical creatures I can create with it. So that's talking about how we've been using generative AI outside of work. How about at work? Jack, I know you recently did a really interesting experiment with one of our clients uh, using uh, MidJourney. I would love to uh, hear a little bit more about that. 
Oh, this was exciting. This was something that I had been wanting to try in a in a live setting with a client for quite a while. And I had done a little bit of work using mid mid-journey to brainstorm design ideas at a previous employer, but uh, this is the the first time I really had a chance to to put the wheels on it and try the whole thing out. So what we did was we created collaboratively in Miro with a client. Uh, mostly the client was doing this. They created a mood board, which is, you know, mood boards have been in use since the Mad Men era in design, and they existed even before that in architecture. And usually you use a mood board as just a reference piece throughout your design process. You go back to it when you're trying to think about the look and feel of a piece or a set of designs that you're working on. In this case, though, you can point the AI at the mood board. So I fed the mood board that our clients created to MidJourney as an image prompt. And then I did a whole bunch of takes. Um, I used its interface for evolving the images. I had about 15 minutes while one of my colleagues was doing something else with the group that I had just been talking to. And then when I came back, I had a bunch of website and interface element designs that the AI had brainstormed for them based on the mood board that they created. So they put all the ingredients into the pot and I made them some pretty good soup. And we then discussed and voted on the, uh, the designs that the AI produced. And from those, I was able to derive a set of design principles that'll serve as our rudder throughout the process. And we'll have some of those examples of AI designed sites to go back and look at. You know, somebody might say, hey, that, that one was cool. Can we do something a little like that? You know, so it's like a mood board on steroids, really. It, it takes the mood board and it then extrapolates from it in all kinds of different directions to get you something that you might not have come up with on your own. And this works very well for graphic design because at any given time in the world of graphic design, there are probably only about a dozen people doing really original work. And everyone else is working with a set of styles, aesthetics, this year's colors, this year's way of pushing pixels that we're all working from. So the sort of shake and bake approach to getting a design, I think, works especially well for websites and for mobile apps. Yeah, that was such a cool exercise. And what I really love about it is that the really creative part, it sounds like, is really done by the human beings. And you're using MidJourney to kind of essentially synthesize what's coming out of the human designer's brains and put some kind of order to it. And this is something that we've been striding toward for a long time with AI is having AI sort of, I refer to the procedure really as harvesting. We're finding wild ideas and we're taking the ones that we think we might be able to housebreak inside. And the AI is perfect for that. It can give us all these different permutations of how something could be evolved and then let us contrast and, and compare them. And it's very satisfying for the people doing the exercise. Because with normal mood boarding, I mean, that's very participatory to begin with. But with AI mood boarding, you're then able to, you know, take the output and actually see 
quickly where it could lead you. And that's really powerful for turning light bulbs on in the client's head. Now, Patrick, you said you've been using it for coding. Yeah, when Jack was talking, I was actually thinking of some parallels on the the code side as well. So obviously, um, not as graphic or um, creative in like uh, a visual space, but definitely very helpful in doing some both rudimentary coding exercises, like almost acting as like an advanced clipboard, remembering things that I have done before, um, but also doing some of the conceptual work as well and kind of coming up with structures and frameworks for things and answering questions that are more complicated than you might be able to get out of a search engine. Um, so I guess I, I've kind of used it in that, in those two ways. I primarily use GitHub's Copilot for the like advanced clipboard. The idea there is that uh, you can add comments to your code and it'll add a suggestion of the code to kind of meet that need given the comment. So there are lots of things, uh, particularly in Drupal development where it's a longer chunk of code that is pretty straightforward. It's just, there's lots of instances where you could forget syntax or, not call something the right thing. And in some cases, something might be called type, but somewhere else it's called bundle. And so there's all these little details to remember. And it does a really great job at figuring out that sort of thing. And I found pretty good success with it. Like I said, it is more narrowly focused to a couple of lines of code or a section like that. Um, but then I've used ChatGPT to do some of the conceptual work. And this is where it gets a little bit more hit or miss. But when it's right, it's really, really powerful. So the cool thing about how ChatGPT responds to kind of coding requests is that it knows the concept of multiple files and how they interact with each other. So you can ask it to, I don't know, build some sort of complex technical thing and it'll show you like the three or four files that you need to do to get there. And that's been super, super helpful. I find that, I guess it's kind of similar to, to what we were talking about too, with like you have to know and provide a little bit of the human touch or the creative element. You have to know what you're talking about to be able to understand if what it's giving you is any good and also to clearly describe what you're looking for. I've had some instances where I'm like, this is not helpful at all, but uh, I think it's because I'm not phrasing something correctly. So it's not replacing a developer, but I feel like it is helping me be more creative when it comes to the coding side. So it's been really cool to see so far. And I feel like I've been able to not only speed up, but do things that are a little more complex than I could in the past, because I don't know, I'm just like moving through things faster and understanding concepts uh, even better. That's the other great thing is that it really explains what it does too. It doesn't just spit some code out at you. So I feel like I'm learning you know, on the fly. So Rob, you mentioned before you'd been using um, Miro's generative tools. I've used it for some fairly straightforward stuff. As a project manager, communication is very, very important. And I tend to be a little bit too verbose in my writing sometimes. So ChatGPT can be really great for just giving it some text and saying, you know, making sure it's it's sensitive. You want to make sure that you're being careful about what you're providing to the AI. But so if it's safe, you say, hey, here's some text. Um, I want you to make it a little bit shorter, but please don't remove any of the, the meaning. Uh, within it. It does a pretty good job. As for Miro AI, that's been really helpful and fascinating to me. So for those who don't know, Miro is a digital whiteboard tool for remote collaboration. And they recently added a suite of AI tools powered by Microsoft Azure AI. 
So that does everything from generating an image based on some text you've written, mid-journey style. So you can give it a sticky note and just say, make an image out of this, uh, to drafting acceptance criteria on a Kanban card, uh, all the way to generating branches of a mind map with some questions, ideas, and topics. Uh, so similar to what Jack has said and Patrick as well, it's not replacing the work that we need to do, but it definitely helps to speed things up. It helps to uh, streamline some of the processes that we go through uh, that we've kind of just accepted as day-to-day -day work. So one example of that was I, I met with a teammate of mine to do some co-working one day, and we tried out the Miro AI tool and probably would have what would have taken us about 30 minutes to get to with some baseline ideas and questions, uh, we got to in about 30 seconds with Miro AI. And that didn't just complete our work, that just advanced us 30 minutes into the future where we can pick that up and run with it. So it really made things a lot more efficient for us and it made our work better. You know, Rob, it's funny that you mentioned the, the image editor aspect of this because I just realized as you're talking, the thing that I've found most useful AI-wise that I use all the time is the select subject feature in Photoshop, which is a new feature. It's AI driven. It's been there for a few years now, and it has the ability to do a selection within a photograph based on saying, all right, that's a person. I'm going to get all of that person. And we're not talking about that kind of AI very much right now because, you know, machine learning and deep learning aren't as cool as they were a few years ago. Now it's generative AI, but that stuff is all still there too. And part of our lives. And we we sometimes forget that it's, uh, that it's there. I certainly did in that case. And then Oksana, how are you using AI to help you with work? I do play around with the AI, but I do not integrate it in my work life because I'm always extra precautious and I always like want to make sure it's safe to use it. And I feel like like Patrick say, like sometimes when you asking some question and it's it's give you like some concept, but it's not give you a final answer. And the other thing I noticed, the more details you give AI, the more clear it is, the more right it is. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of on hold to using AI in my work life. That makes sense. And we'll talk more in a little bit about some of those precautions that folks should use when they are working with AI tools at work. So I've been using primarily ChatGPT, but also Bard or Claude for writing tasks. I do a lot of work with the marketing side of the house here. And so it's a really useful tool to kind of help take existing text and condense it or transform it. Uh, one example would be a blog post that we published recently that was actually adapted from a presentation that someone had given. And we had the transcript for the presentation. And so it was able to take that into ChatGPT and ask it to turn it into a blog post, essentially, and structure it in the right way with the headers and everything. And then we still needed to go back and edit the copy manually, but it saved a lot of time. The transcript that will accompany this podcast will very likely use AI because the transcript that gets generated by the software when we record it it captures the words correctly, but it doesn't always break the sentences in the right places. And so what I found is that when you take that and you can feed it into ChatGPT and ask it to clean up those sentence breaks, and it will do a really good job of that. Uh, so it, I've been using it very much as a copy editor, 
and also a little bit to kind of help draft some tweets for our Twitter feed or social media feeds, uh, things of that nature, but really focused around not so much generating copy, but taking existing copy and either editing it or transforming it. Another really great example was uh, we were responding to uh, an RFP writing a proposal and they had uh, word limits for the different uh, questions they were asking. So it was a really great way to make sure that the copy that we were providing kept within those word limits so that we remained responsive to their uh, request for proposal. George, yeah. you're reminding me of uh, another way that um, we've tested out uh, the use of AI here at Palantir, and that is to provide ChatGPT with a template. So that can be done via, if you're looking for sets of data, but you want it to all be formatted the same way, uh, you can actually give that to ChatGPT. You can say, here is the template I would like you to use. I would like you to look at this text, or I would like you to visit this URL and fill in the details in this template I have provided you. And it does a pretty decent job. Again, there's probably gonna be some cleanup that's needed, but it does a really good job of creating a format that you need that you can then, then refine a little bit further. That's a really great example. Text transformation really plays into the strengths of these you know, large language models because essentially the way they work is they're trained to kind of predict what the next word will be or to recognize the pattern. So that's why it understands human language really well because it's been trained on however many bazillion points of data to really understand, if not the, the meaning of language, the form that it takes. It mimics very well. So when you tell it to spit out something in a particular pattern, then it does a really great job of that. So what are some of the different kinds of precautions that you take when using generative AI tools? And what would you recommend others keep in mind when using them? Yeah, one of the precautions that I take when I use chat GPT for work purposes is I've turned off the chat history. So theoretically, that should disable uh, chat GPT's reuse of anything that I'm feeding it. It is a little annoying every now and then because it'll lose context that you've built up over time. Uh, I've noticed that when I've been, I don't know, solving a particular problem and come back the next day and I kind of have to rebuild some things from scratch. But I've also started redacting client names or um, other things like that uh, when I feed it into ChatGPT, even with the chat history turned off. Uh, we commonly name Drupal modules with a prefix of like the client name underscore and then some sort of like functionality. So it would be like client name underscore search. And I've just been replacing that with something more generic like my module and then doing a find and replace on my own when I could actually use some of the code. So that's been one of the ways that I've been trying to redact it some. I'm trying to think from a personal perspective, I do have the chat history on and I don't think I fed it anything that I would think is super sensitive. So I can't think of anything on that side. So there are four main areas here that are risks that I try to keep in mind. Uh, security, accuracy, disinformation, and economics. So from a security standpoint, I work with government clients. I have to tell them, 
before we do an AI mood boarding exercise, for example, don't put anything confidential, classified, or unpublished into the mood board, which they're government employees. They already know that, but I do have to say that anyway. And likewise with any confidential client or government information. Accuracy is a big one because I find myself frequently having to question the AI's answers um, on stuff. Like it, sometimes it just gets things wrong. I asked it to translate the Bill of Rights from late 18th century English to English as it's spoken now. And that was interesting and has a lot of implications for the legal system, uh, given that our government now dictates things be written in plain English. Is that retroactive to the Constitution itself? Who knows? But it has a lot of interesting implications. And one thing that the AI did was when it translated the First Amendment, it used the term free expression. And I immediately stopped the generation and said, wait, free expression is never used in there. And you're not translating. You're just making stuff up now. And so the, um, the AI then backtracked and said, oh, yeah, you're right free expression isn't actually mentioned, here's a real translation. So it'll try to pull a fast one on you. Uh, from a disinformation standpoint, we do not want to be spreading disinformation by accident even. So like if I create an image just to make a funny meme and it looks too real, I'll say this is by an AI. And I think people should start doing that. And finally, economic reasons. I try to think about the economic implications of any thing that I use AI for. For example, I have done some, some independent game publishing. I would not replace my paid human illustrators with an AI. I don't feel right about that. I would not use a self-driving car because 30% of our uh, economy relies in some way, shape, or form on people driving. And if you put 30% of the economy out of work, the rest of us are pretty hosed too because of the effects on consumer spending. So we have to look ahead to that and think really carefully about what we're letting AI do for us. For us as knowledge professionals, the idea of using AI to sort of pan for gold and get the good ideas that you need to do your work, to organize thoughts, that's all legit. That's something that's coming. It's going to happen. Um, we're going to have to adjust to it and live with it. But we have a choice between using it in smart ways like that and using it to just straight up replace people. And, you know, I hope we'll be doing a lot of the former and very little of the latter. I recently read an article by uh, Ted Chang, the um, science fiction author, who's written some really good uh, articles about AI. One of the recent articles that he wrote was really talking about the danger of AI, not so much as, you know, Terminator-like apocalypse or the end of humanity, but that the real thing we needed to watch out for was that it would be used to further entrench capitalist power structures and inequality. And so I think, you know, Jack, you raised some really good examples there of different ways that AI could be used by very powerful, very well-resourced people and corporations to undermine those who have less. Yeah, and Ted Chang's work is 101. If you want to read a sci-fi writer who's really thinking deeply about how this stuff is panning out, he is a master. I want to say the new technology generally can make process and uh, produce something cheaper and easier. But at the same time, it can mean you do same with the less people, or you can do much more with the same amount of people. So I think 
in this, if you think this way, the AI may be not that negative as some people thought. It is interesting because it seems like every time a, a new technology comes along, the pitch is always, oh, it will make your life easier and that you'll now suddenly have more free time. But the reality, as you say, is either that, no, we just either get asked to do more stuff to fill in that time, or the people who formerly did those tasks are put out of work completely. Jack, I'm, I'm definitely with you on the self-driving cars thing. There's a lot of cool things you can do with AI. We've talked about that a bit. So, you know, generating some cool art for your Dungeons & Dragons campaign, that's good. Having a driverless car barreling towards me, taking a picture of my silhouette and trying to guess my BMI so it can run the trolley problem on me, not so great. And I know I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. But, you know, safety and security are not being taken seriously enough. And I don't just mean the data security. I don't mean just what should we be entering into the uh, the chat GPT field uh, and submitting enter. I mean, the personal safety of the user. Uh, a lot of companies are not only throwing caution to the wind, they're actively pushing AI on their users. So I would encourage people to be very careful about the data that they're providing to these AI models, even if they say that they're not uh, keeping their history. Because as we know, some of these social media companies have also said that they're not sharing any of that data. And we know where that went. A teammate of ours recently shared an episode of a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. And the episode was called The AI Dilemma. I would encourage folks to listen to that. There's a pretty horrifying story about Snapchat's AI bot, which reminded me that I have a Snapchat account. I opened Snapchat. And when I tried to remove that AI bot from, a front, my, from my friends list, I could not. If there is a way to remove it, I could not find it. It's not easy. And that feels very gross to me. We could do an entire episode on digital surveillance and the ways that our information, our browsing history, everything is used and monetized without our knowledge or consent. And I certainly do share the concern that AI can just supercharge that in, in pretty scary ways. One of the things that I have been thinking about and concerned about and cautious about when it comes to the code side of things is, you know, we work with open source software. The ability to open source software relies on your ability to copyright the software. And the uh, U.S. Copyright Office has uh, determined, they've, they've published a memo that says that if something is wholly or substantially generated by an AI, they won't copyright it. Uh, so they draw a distinction between a work where you're using AI to assist. So the analogy would be, if you use Photoshop to modify an image, an existing image that a human photographer took, then that is something that's still copyrightable because the human being is in charge of that. So was substantially responsible for the creation, directed the creation of that work. And uh, however, a completely computer-generated image, even if you gave it the prompts and everything, would not be eligible for copyright, at least as the Copyright Office with their current guidance states. So I do worry about the implications that this would have if people are generating large amounts of AI-generated code. Technically speaking, that code can't be made open source. First of all, it may come from 
a place where it's already been copyrighted or released under a different uh, standard. And there's actually lawsuits about that right now. And then if you can't hold copyright on the code, then you can't actually attach an open source license to it. So I know that there are folks who are thinking about this, who are concerned about this, and who are working on this problem. But I think it is something that in the meantime, those of us who are working with AI in software need to be really cognizant of. I found that... I don't know. It's a detriment or a, a shortcoming of chat GPT, but maybe helps fulfill some of this is that I've never gotten a code snippet from chat GPT that I can just like copy and paste and run. There's always something wrong in, in a couple of places. Jack, I think you were talking about accuracy. That is one benefit of the code side is that you can like put it in and see if it works or not. There's kind of a yes or no as far as the accuracy of something that ChatGPT gives you. But I've had it just make up entire functions and I'll be like, hey, I'm not seeing that. I'm getting an error that that function isn't a thing. And it'll be like, yeah, you're right. That's not. So it's even making up. I don't know, functions and, and things that you would think it would have a pretty good defined library for. So I guess as of right now, it feels like the copyright side is somewhat protected by ChatGPT's own shortcomings of being able to give you really uh, copy and pasteable code. But that's not to be, I don't know, I could see that getting better in the future. And that problem would definitely be something to consider. It does kind of act like a hyper-intelligent toddler in that way, Patrick. It will be so confident, uh, and then when you reason with it, it will just realize the error of its ways. But it's really interesting that it's so confident, as we said earlier in this conversation. I, I want to know what toddlers you know that recognize the errors of their ways. That's fair. Fair point, George. Yeah. I retract my statement. <laughs> was I just talking to Rob, or was I talking to ChatGPT? Who knows? I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> so... We've talked a little bit about some of the ways that you can use generative AI technologies to make things easier or better or to assist on a personal level and in the workplace, and also some of the precautions and dangers of overly relying on AI technologies. I'm curious how you think generative AI will impact culture and society. I think that capitalism has been obscuring and even ruining some of these valuable outcomes of AI. Some of these larger corporations have been thinking of how they can replace human labor to save money, to cut corners. And that's thinking about it wrong. There is a nuance and a grace to human labor, human creativity, and human empathy in our work that AI is not ready to replace. So that's why we see more and more strikes by labor unions happening. And that's going to keep happening if we keep treating AI like it's the answer to all of the budgetary problems that these companies have. It's not the answer. AI should not be replacing people. It should be helping people and enriching our lives. I agree with you in large part, Rob. The one thing that I'm also concerned about is the bias that gets baked into a lot of the AI algorithms and decision makers, um, whether that's facial recognition and certain data sets that it gets trained with or... I don't know, there's just all sorts of bias. And I feel like we can both program that in and also try to fight against that. And I'm worried about the implicit bias that comes with a lot of things and how that'll impact people in their day-to-day -day lives. I'm very excited about using it to replace billionaires. 
I had it write a better business plan for Twitter as if it were Reed Hastings. And it made a heck of a lot more sense than anything that Mr. Musk was doing. And, you know, he's, he's actually pretty useless. And when you can have demonstrate that an AI can think about problems more clearly than him, the whole house of cards that's propping up the mega wealthy kind of comes falling down. Corporations need leadership. They need experience. You know, they need people to hold them together. You know, we have this wonderful model of servant leadership at our company that that works very differently and operates very differently than what you see in the Silicon Valley tech world. And when you consider the fact that our economy is basically run sometimes by a bunch of gamblers, then really where we should be applying AI is to business decision making, investing, finance, currency modeling, things like that where rational decision-making instead of stupid risk-taking would make all of our lives better. But that's not what's going to happen. We're going to use it to replace drivers, and then we're going to have an economic apocalypse. I still, like, after all saying this, guys, I still see, like, positive impact on us. Because it's, like, in our daily life, it's make our life easier and more convenient. And uh, we have, like, a better access to maybe, like, for, like to learn something to for education or increase our productivity that's how i see that i see you know again thinking about not so much the the hypotheticals but maybe taking the a more practical perspective i think it'll be like most technologies right it'll make some things better and some things worse i do have concerns about how those who are very powerful and wealthy will use it to try and continue to remain powerful and wealthy and become more powerful and wealthy if but i also think it will hopefully be a tool that might be able to help us with some scientific advancements in various fields i know people are already very eager to and are working on applying it toward the problem of climate change and finding solutions to climate change while at the same time the technology itself also has a massive carbon footprint. So that's, again, that little bit of good and bad. I am really worried about the impact on the usability of the web in general. We've already really started to see so many, so much garbage AI generated copy just getting, just flooding every part of the web. And that in turn makes it much more difficult to find good quality information uh, on the web. And that concerns me greatly and, you know, has the potential to make the web a far less useful place uh, than it is now. Science fiction to date has largely concerned itself with AI personhood. Machines becoming fully sentient and sapient and then wanting their rights or wanting to kill us or anything. Part of the problem is that we need a better vocabulary for AI. Right now we call it all AI. And there mm -hmm. are some really clear differences between the generative AI we're all crazy about right now, deep learning and machine learning, which were forms of AI, and the type of AI, the generalized intelligence that we're talking about in the future. And sci-fi has been overly concerned with generalized intelligence and hasn't spent enough time talking about how more limited forms of AI could cause a lot of disruption as well. Let's just go there uh, right now. Sure. 
And this is a really important question because I think what we see in culture really impacts how people in general think about these kinds of technologies. And especially when they're being called artificial intelligence, when there's actually nothing that's actually intelligent about them. But I think, again, it conjures up memories of HAL 9000 or the Terminator or other classic science fiction icons. So I am glad you brought up 2001 because it's a great example of this. So in 2001, there are iPads, but nobody really followed up on that. iPads and mobile devices like that are not that big a deal in that world. They're just a technology. And Arthur C. Clarke never thought of any of the second order uses of that. He never thought about how having a tablet would affect society. It's just there in the background. And the same thing has happened with AI. You have science fiction writers all the time. They'll drop references to, you know, the AI that makes all the decisions about taxes or, you know, the accounting AI or whatever that's in the, in the background, the AI that runs our spaceship as if these are all just kind of background technologies that are just kind of sitting there and they don't have any really big effect on society. Meanwhile, we're distracted by the Terminator. <laughs> and I actually did my college honors thesis on 2001 A Space Odyssey. So yeah, it's a film I know very well. And because in doing the production design and research for the film, they talked with a lot of people in technology in the field as it existed in the mid-60s, they did get a lot of those background technologies right. But I'm curious what other examples uh, folks are particularly drawn to. I've been a longtime fan of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so Marvin the Paranoid Android really resonates with me. Something about a robot that's been given a giant brain and is so intelligent that it makes him both bored and depressed uh, is a little bit too real. One of my like peak nerd things that I do is I name my electronic devices after assistants or like cool sciencey people. So my computer is named after Ada Lovelace, who is like one of the first programmers. I have Watson as one of my devices, but my Raspberry Pi that I have at home that does some light servery things around my house is named Jarvis from the Iron Man movie. I realize it's not in the I don't know the way back Marvel canon, but I don't know. When I was a younger kid, I appreciated it. And it seemed like a cool thing. So I have named it that. My favorite is the Wally. Wally? Wally, yes. Yes. <laughs> He's adorable. I know. I know. And I don't know how many times I watched this uh, movie and I watched it with my daughter. And I, I adore Wally. Yeah. Oh, you know what's actually more like a generative AI than any of the typical AI examples from movies? The computer in the Batcave is like a generative AI. Batman and Robin feed questions into it, and it gives them these detailed, context-sensitive answers. I think that's the closest thing to a generative AI that I've, that I've seen anywhere. That's it's a good pull. The nice silly pull. 60s Batman show. Yeah, no, that's very accurate. And so, uh, yeah, so for my example, I'm going to pull from something that's that's even more obscure, the early 70s uh, sci-fi cult classic film Dark Star. In that film, which is kind of a comedy about a, a crew in space, there's a, a scene where there's a 
artificially intelligent bomb that is set to explode. And so one of the members of the crew has to try and reason with the bomb to keep it from exploding and destroying the spaceship. I won't tell you how it goes, but it is hilarious. So it's a good like kind of uh, Saturday night, midnight movie if you're looking for something to put on. And pretty clever, pretty funny, very low budget, but a fun film nonetheless. Sounds great all around. How have I not seen this? Thank you so much, everyone, uh, for a great conversation. We'll be back in a few weeks uh, with another fresh episode. In the meantime, check out our website at palantir.net for more insights. And of course, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you. Now, Bomb, consider this next question very carefully. What is your one purpose in life? To explode, of course. And you can only do it once, right? That is correct. And you wouldn't want to explode on the basis of false data, would you? Of course not. Well then, you've already admitted that you have no real proof of the existence of the outside universe. Yes, well... So you have no absolute proof that Sergeant Pinback ordered you to detonate? I recall distinctly the detonation order. My memory is good on matters like these. Of course you remember it, but, but all you're remembering is merely a series of sensory impulses which you now realize have no real definite connection with, with outside reality. True. But since this is so, I have no proof that you are really telling me all this. That's all beside the point. I mean, the concept is valid no matter where it originates. Hmm. So if you detonate, you could be doing so on the basis of false data. I have no proof it was false data. You have no proof it was...